From 230 Euclid Avenue, I'm Mariah Humiston, and this is the Daily Orange Podcast. Today, a semester of grief. SU chaplains explain how to cope after four campus community deaths. Visibility on campus, a new mural to honor the Onondaga Nation. And access audio, how Syracuse University Press is working with Inclusive U students. It's Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020. Trigger warning, the following story contains discussions of death and grieving. Yeah, so the first loss happened about a month ago. Bridget Lawson was a graduate student who died on September 22nd. She was 40 years old. And then about three weeks later, Trevor Pierce died tragically in a trolley accident. He was skateboarding down Waverly Avenue, and he collided with a trolley on October 13th. And then the next day, a little over 24 hours later, Jack London, who was a freshman magazine news and digital journalism student, died unexpectedly overnight. And then the next week, Sherry Taylor, who was a beloved professor at Newhouse, died on October 19th after a long battle with Parkinson's disease. My name is Maggie Hicks, and I am an assistant news editor at The Daily Orange. Chaplains at Hendricks Chapel are working to support those mourning the deaths of Syracuse University community members this semester. Maggie, what did they tell you about the impacts of experiencing loss? They told me a lot, but I think the main thing was just that grief is something that's very natural and it's something that every person is going to go through in their life. Dean Conkle said something that really stood out to me. He said that grief is a natural and predictable consequence of love. So the only way to not grieve is to never love someone. And as human beings, we naturally love people. So even when it's something like this, where like a lot of people did not know the people who died, they're can still be that feeling of grief and that feeling of loss because grieving is something that happens to everyone and it's something that's going to happen anytime tragedy happens. So that was the main thing they said was just that it's okay to grieve. It's okay to understand that you're sad. And honestly, it's better to understand that rather than press it down because it's something that you have to come to terms with that you will grieve in your life and there's nothing you can do about it. And you spoke with several chaplains and the Dean of Hendricks. What did they say about experiencing loss, even if someone may not know an individual personally? Yeah, so they all kind of said similar things. And that's that when you have someone who dies and you didn't necessarily know them, it forces you to think about your own mortality. It forces you to think about the mortality of your loved ones. And even if you didn't know the person, you still feel a connection to them because They were part of your community. They were also a human being. They also had feelings. And after that happens, that person can't experience life in the way that you can, in the way that the people around you can. So experiencing that empathy for someone else and experiencing that loss is still very natural. And it's as natural as grieving someone who's close to you. Because like I said, tomorrow is not guaranteed. The next day is not guaranteed and things happen. And it also forces you to think about the people in your life who you couldn't handle losing to, and understanding that their lives aren't guaranteed for the next day either. So it's a culmination of things, but I think, again, 
just realizing that it is normal to grieve even if you have never seen the person who died before in your life and it's something that people can accept and it's something that people need to talk about. What did Chaplain Brian Conkle say is one of the hardest parts about experiencing death? He said that it's the permanence of death. So when someone dies, it's hard to come to terms with the fact that that death is now a part of your life and it's going to affect you no matter what. So this entire freshman class is now going to live with the fact that two of their community members died within the same week in their second month of school. The SU community is going to have to live with the fact that four members died within the same month. So just understanding that death is permanent and it's something that is going to happen no matter what, he said that's the hardest part of the grieving process is just coming to terms with the fact that something like this can't be reversed and something like this will happen eventually. We just don't know when. And how is this especially hard on SU freshmen? So Dean Conkle talked a lot about how freshmen coming into school are already experiencing one of the biggest transitions that they will have experienced in their life. So they're coming in, they're going through a massive transition, and death is already a major transition in someone's life. Like I was talking about before, it's permanent. It's something that will automatically affect you and it's not going to change. So they're already going through an immense amount of transitions from home, academically, making new friends. And to have that transition of death within the first two months of being at school is just incredibly difficult and incredibly stressful to come to terms with. Additionally, another chaplain at at Hendricks Chapel, Rhonda Chester, was talking about how these freshmen have already experienced an immense amount of grief in the past year. I mean, we all have because of the coronavirus, but they didn't experience their last year of high school. They didn't experience their last year of childhood, essentially. So they're already coming in with that immense amount of grief. And to have something like this on top of that is even worse. And I think finally, it's a very strange semester to be a freshman. It's a strange semester for anybody, but it's a very strange semester to be a freshman because this is insanely unprecedented. And I think coming in with not knowing anyone or not really knowing the area can make grieving a lot harder because one of the ways to cope with grief, Dean Conkle said, was to find connection and find comfort in the people around you. And it's hard to do that when you're in a completely new place in the middle of a pandemic. What are chaplains encouraging members of the SU community to do during this time? The main thing that everyone said was find community, find connection, and talk about how you're feeling. So all of the chaplains I spoke with said that the best thing you can do is find support in the people around you, whether that be through some of the resources at the Barnes Center or talking to chaplains at Hendricks Chapel, going to a counselor at the Barnes Center, or just talking to the people around you, talking to your friends, talking to your professors, anybody that you trust and you know will listen to you. It's important to talk about how you're feeling. It's important to talk about the grief that you're feeling, and it's important to talk about why. And also just finding comfort in the people around you, surrounding yourself with people who love and support you, whether that be in person or virtually. There's always going to be ways to connect. And all the chaplains just said that people need to seek those out no matter what. 
And in your article, you mentioned Syracuse's Grief Awareness Program. Can you explain what that is to me? Yeah, so Rhonda Chester started the Grief Awareness Program before this semester started. And when she originally started it, it was something that she was anticipating was going to be needed specifically for COVID because of the amount of grief that this pandemic can bring. And the Grief Awareness Program has already had three sessions. However, the third one, I believe, happened after the four deaths in the community over the past month. And Chester was just saying that While it was only supposed to be technically for coronavirus, this also provided an opportunity for students to really talk about their emotions and really find support within one another and find support within Hendricks Chapel and within themselves. And it it just gave students a space to do whatever they needed to do in order to grieve. So whether that be to be angry, to be sad, to cry, to throw things, it just gave people an opportunity to do what they needed to do to power through this. Joanne Cook is a Buddhist chaplain at Hendricks, and she told you it's also important to feel connected to the person who has died, even if you didn't know them personally. What does she mean by this? So what Joanne was saying was that when a person dies, obviously that person is not around anymore, but that doesn't mean that their presence isn't around anymore. So she was talking a lot about how it's important to find ways to remember them and find ways to connect with them even after they've died. So whether that be setting up a memorial or looking through pictures or just finding something that you know connects you to them can really help go through the grieving process because it's reminding you that this person did exist and this person was around and they're still a part of your life. So what a lot of students did when Pierce died was they set up a memorial on the corner of Comstock and Waverly where he collided with the trolley and they set up pictures, they put out flowers just to create a bridge between here and Trevor. And I think that that was important for the entire community because whenever you walk past it, you're reminded of what happened and you're reminded that Trevor was a part of the community and still very much is. What did Conkle say students and faculty who are grieving should do? He mentioned to you about the small steps that people can do to grieve and some larger steps. Explain those to me. So Conkle said that some of the larger steps you can take are, like I said, going to the Barn Center, going to Hendricks Chapel, and using the resources that are on campus for people, especially during this time and during any time. But he also said that it's important to take a walk, get connected with nature, write a letter to the person who died, write a letter to someone at home, write a letter to your roommate. And it's also important to, like like I said, connect with people. So give someone a call, go get coffee, talk to someone. It's a combination of the big things and the small things that can get you through it. And what did he say is the goal of the grieving process? The goal of the grieving process is not to ignore grief, but rather to accept it. So like he was saying, grieving is something that's going to happen. It's inevitable. It's part of being human. So if you try to ignore grief, if you try to get rid of it, it's just going to get worse and it's just going to build up even more. So the goal of the grieving process is never to get rid of it completely but rather to accept that it's there, accept that it's natural, and accept that it's part of being human. 
And finally, where can students and faculty seek help on campus? Students and faculty can seek help at the Barnes Center. They can also seek help at Hendricks Chapel. There are plenty of mental health counselors in both places, and the chaplains are all there from various different religions to talk to people, to talk people through it. They all shared personal experiences with me of students talking to them. So those are the two main resources, but also students should understand that they can go to their professors, they can go to their RAs, they can go to anybody around them who they know will support them and they know will be there for them. Maggie Hicks is an assistant news editor for The Daily Orange. You can read her article, SU Chaplains Explain Ways to Cope After Campus Community Deaths, on The Daily Orange website. Maggie, as always, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. On October 6th, SU announced plans to create a permanent art installation that honors the Onondaga Nation. The whole aim or goal is to have it be a more permanent land acknowledgement because Indigenous students didn't feel like saying it at the events was enough. They wanted something on campus that acknowledged that SU sits on Onondaga land. I'm Madison Tyler. I'm an assistant copy editor for The Daily Orange. How long has the idea of this mural been in place? The indigenous students have recently decided on a mural because February they started the process of finding an artist and that's when the decision to make it a mural came about. But the process for having a permanent installation has been in the works for about a year since not again SU. Where will the mural go and what is this mural acknowledging? The mural is going to go in the quad. The specific location is not known yet. Like I said before, it's acknowledging Onondaga Nation and the fact that Syracuse University sits in Onondaga Nation land. You spoke to Indigenous students and alumni about this mural. What are their thoughts about it? Broadly speaking, the students I spoke with said that the art installation's significance lies in the fact that it's about making Indigenous students visible on campus because there's a lack of visibility when it comes to Indigenous students. So, for example, Iona Scully talked about how some SU students have talked about Indigenous students in the past tense as if there isn't a community of Indigenous students in Syracuse, of Indigenous people in Syracuse who are thriving, as she said, and also sometimes suffering from the legacy of colonization. So it's definitely about, from what I heard from Indigenous students, about visibility and having a more concrete commitment to the land acknowledgement. So what is the Acknowledgement Committee, and how did they play a role in the creation of this mural? The Acknowledgement Committee is a group of Indigenous students, staff, and faculty. As a part of the Indigenous Students at Syracuse organization, which is also known as ISAS, 
They revised the land acknowledgement, which has yet to be announced, but they are working on revising the land acknowledgement. They created flyers to put out call for artists. They crafted the proposal, so they've just really been the leaders of making it so that there will be an art installation on campus. And who did they choose to do this mural and why? The Acknowledgement Committee chose Brandon Lazor because primarily, and it was through a process of sending out calls and artists sent in samples of their work. And part of the reason why they chose Brandon is because he is an Onondaga artist. And also Iona Scully said that his work has traditional and contemporary elements. And that was just important in terms of communicating that message of Indigenous students have been here and they are here and they'll continue to be here. How does this mural relate at all to the demands Indigenous students gave the university last year during the Not Again SU movement? The mural, like I previously said, is a more permanent commitment to the land acknowledgement. And Mars Jacobs, who's an alumni, said that the fact that the university is committed to installing a permanent work of art that's going to be here forever is really important to the Indigenous students. Along with the mural, and you just mentioned this, Madison, Indigenous students also discussed revising SU's land acknowledgement. What is this acknowledgement, and how do Indigenous students feel about it? Yeah, so the land acknowledgement is set at the beginning of large SU events and gatherings to honor the Onondaga Nation, the fact that Syracuse University sits on Onondaga land, and The Indigenous students I spoke to felt like it's too short. It doesn't provide context for why it's said at events. And they also felt like sometimes people would just, it's just said and then people forget about it. So the purpose of creating a a new revised acknowledgement is to provide that context and a call to action in the acknowledgement. What are other conversations university students want to have with the school about indigenous representation on campus? So one of the things that Iona also mentioned was the Saltine Warrior statue in front of Carnegie Library. Iona Scully views the art installation as an alternative way of thinking about indigenous students on campus. So before the university is ready to have a conversation about possibly removing the Salting Warrior, which portrays a racist caricature of the indigenous community, the art installation will hopefully do that. And finally, what is the plan moving forward with all of this? So moving forward, the community plans to have Lazor meet with Pete Sala, who's the vice president and chief facilities officers, and Brian Conkle, who's the dean at Hendricks Chapel, to discuss the installation size, cost, and location, as well as a timetable for its installation. 
Madison Tyler is an assistant copy editor for the Daily Orange. You can read her story, Indigenous Students Will Design Art Installation to Honor Onondaga Nation on the Daily Orange website. Madison, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Hey, if you want to support great stories like the ones you just heard, donate to the Daily Orange or join our membership program. As a nonprofit, every donation matters. To help, go to dailyorange.com slash donate. Jim O'Connor is the producer of Soundbeat and Access Audio. He works for SU Libraries. He's been listening to audio stories for the past 35 years. I'm Sydney Bergen, and I'm the assistant culture editor. What is Soundbeat? Soundbeat is a 90-second radio show run out of the Belfer Audio Archives, and it's a quick little show, as Jim called it, where they go into the archives and find, like, old books and journals and interviews, and they, like, do a 90-second segment about the history of it or something that, like, the general public won't know in order to give people access to all of these resources that we have. And how is Soundbeat collaborating with Access Audio? Access Audio is another one of Jim O'Connor's projects that's specifically focused on audiobooks and audio storytelling. They're working with SU Press to turn books that SU Press works with into audiobooks with like music and a narrator and all the theatrics necessary. Can you tell me about some of Access Audio's latest projects? Access Audio recently released an audiobook for this book called Reservoir Years by this woman named Nina Shengold. And it's about the Ashokan Reservoir in the Catskill Mountains. She walked there every day for a year and like challenged herself to write something different that she noticed every day and kind of made this compilation into this book. So SU Press helped her publish it. And then they turned it with Access Audio into an audiobook with a narrator and a soundtrack and the full shipping. Now, Inclusive You is involved with this project. Can you tell me what is Inclusive You and specifically how have they been involved with Access Audio? Inclusive You is a program out of the School of Education that helps to give students with intellectual disabilities access to a college experience. And so what Soundbeat and then Access Audio has been doing is hiring them as interns to help on projects. So in the case of Reservoir Years, there were two interns, David Ross, who's a recent Inclusive You graduate, and Ian Coe, who's a senior, who worked on separate ends of the project with Jim O'Connor and his team. You just mentioned David Ross. Who is he and how does he help with Access Audio? David Ross is a recent Inclusive U graduate. He was responsible for finding the pronunciation of words that are in the book that the narrator may have had trouble with, so flagging them to the team so that they could update the narrator and make sure that she was saying everything correctly. So that was his job throughout the process. And you also spoke with Steve Coaster. Who is he and how does he help with audiobooks? 
Steve Coaster is like the lead songwriter, singer, guitarist for this band that's out of the Catskills called Two Dark Birds. And he put together the soundtrack for the audiobook, specifically like giving it acoustic sounds and like a nature vibe. And he worked with Inclusive You student Ian Co who worked to like flag passages that would be good accompanied with music. You just mentioned that Coaster worked with Inclusive U student Ian Co on this project. Tell me about what his role is. Ian Co was responsible for going through the manuscript and looking at passages that could be accompanied by music and what like the feel of the music would be if it was accompanied by said music. So that was his role. Can you tell me a bit about what audiobooks mean to Co? Co grew up listening to the audiobooks of his favorite stories. And now, after working on this Reservoir Years project, has said that he started to listen to music podcasts. And he expressed that it gives people who with disabilities who may not be able to read, like your traditional hold-in-your-hand book, access to the same stories that everyone else can have. And finally, what does O'Connor say he wants to do in the future with Soundbeat? O'Connor in the future wants to continue to expand the Access Audio business into becoming like a primary audiobook creator for books. So like he wants how people go to SU Press to have their books published. He wants people to go to Access Audio to have their audiobooks created. And he wants to continue to like tell stories that people may not have access to. Sydney Bergen is an assistant culture editor at The Daily Orange. You can read her article, Soundbeat, Access Audio Creates Audiobook with Inclusive You Students on The Daily Orange website. Sydney, as always, thank you so much for your time. A special thank you to Maggie, Madison, and Sydney. Thanks executive producer and podcast editor Elizabeth Kama and to our producers Abby Fritz, Kylie Herlehy, and Catherine Ido. And as always, thank you for listening. We'll see you next Tuesday.